Good morning, church. Great to see you and be together. We'll be in 1 Timothy 3 today, so if you've brought a Bible, you can turn with me there. And uh, parents, if you've got a child up through fifth grade, want them to go to age-specific teaching, that's offered now out on the patio. If not, that's fine, of course, to have them stay here. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some blue Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, and if you wanted to grab one of those, you can turn to page 576. We are just working our way through uh, this six-chapter letter known as 1 Timothy, and we're now about halfway through, so we're in chapter 3. Again, that's page 576. Two weeks ago, we considered the importance of a church having godly elders. Last Sunday, Pastor Tad did a wonderful job helping us understand who deacons are, what they do, and why their godliness matters. And so if you think sort of concentric circles with me, we've thought about the godliness of the elders, we've thought about the godliness of the deacons, and this morning we're going to consider the godliness of the entire church family. In particular, why godliness is indispensable for the entire church. While our passage this morning is short, it's just a couple of verses, it's not simple, uh, nor is it insignificant. And so let's just jump right into it together in verse 14 of chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3:14, Paul writes this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These are the verses we'll be studying together this morning. Now, there's an important fact undergirding this passage that may not be as self-evident to us as it might seem. And so I want to spend just a moment on that, that truth that undergirds this text, and then we'll just walk through these verses together. Here it is. There is an inevitable, inescapable connection between what you believe and how you behave. Your beliefs, brothers and sisters, drive your behavior. With few exceptions, and there are a few, but with few exceptions, if you want to know what you actually believe, then you just need to look at your behavior. Because what we do flows from our understanding of who God is and who we are. If beliefs change, then inevitably behavior will eventually change. There's an indispensable, inevitable connection between belief and behavior. Now, with that reality in mind, today we'll see in 1 Timothy 3 that godliness is indispensable for the entire church. 
And the reason that's so important is that a church of godly people demonstrate the reality of God's gospel. That's the big idea from these verses, that a church of godly people will demonstrate the reality of God's gospel. Verses 14 and 15 show us this by saying that godliness is essential because the church is God's house and God's house exists to display the truth. That's the first supporting idea we'll work through. And then second, verse 16 teaches us that godliness is exhibited in Jesus. If you want to see what godliness is, you need to look nowhere else but to Christ. So those will be the ideas we're thinking about together today. First, let's consider the essentialness of godliness. Verse 15 is in many ways the thesis, if you will, for the entire letter of 1 Timothy. Paul wanted to get out of prison, travel back to Ephesus, and help sort of straighten that church out in the false doctrine they had begun believing because the false doctrine was beginning to affect their behavior. When we have wrong ideas about God and wrong ideas about what it means to be a Christian, then that will end up inevitably, you're going to get sick of me using that word probably today. I think I've already said it four or five times. That will inevitably, six, mean that our behavior begins to change. Ideas have consequences. Beliefs govern behaviors. And so Paul wanted to get back there, but he couldn't simply pack up his stuff, get on a ship, and make his way back because he was being held in a, most likely in a Roman prison under house arrest, waiting trial. And so in the providence of God, he wrote what he wanted to go back there and share, which has far exceeded the benefit that would have been reached if he was able to travel, because now for 2,000 years, all churches everywhere have been able to hear and listen in on that conversation, that we too might know how it is we're to behave. Paul was concerned because he knew belief drives behavior, and their beliefs were beginning to wane. If a people are to live godly lives together, then they must cling to the same truths about Christ together. The church, you see, is God's house. We, before we started 1 Timothy, did a quick, short little series on the church, and we used this passage as one of those texts. I know you've slept since then, but if you were around back at the start of the fall, remember that we said the church is God's family, God's household. These verses very clearly say that in verse 15. This, you, brothers and sisters, are God's family. And together right now, we are feasting at the table, the dinner table, on God's Word. Now, I know if you've been a Christian very long, you've heard those ideas. You've heard them many, many, many times. But can I encourage you this morning to just privately, quietly, in your own mind and soul and spirit, pray that God would cause you to not let the familiarity with those ideas 
wear off the sheen. This idea that we belong to God, that we're His, and that He has not only forgiven us, but He has reconciled us to Himself, adopting us into His family, that should sparkle every time we hear it, that we are part of the very household of God. We who are enemies have not only been forgiven, but now we're included, reconciled in the very family of God. Because this is God's house, then God has every right to set the rules for what His people are to do. Does that make sense? It's God's house, therefore God's rules govern God's house. If you were to invite uh, me and my family over for dinner, hint, hint, then we would notice when we walked in, let's say you live in a condo, if we walked in over the threshold into your house, we would notice if one of your customs in your house, one of your rules, is the shoes come off the moment you enter. We'd know because there'd be a pile of shoes right there. And uh, we don't do that in my house, but if I come to your house, I'm very happy to take my shoes off and fill your house with the odors of my feet. (laughs) But in my house, we're not down with that. I don't want the house smelling like your feet, so we don't do that. Now, obviously, I'm being facetious, um, or as my kids used to say, I'm being a sea fish. We, We keep our shoes on, but in so doing, we're spreading all the gunk we walked in all day long around the house, inside our house. But we prefer that to the smell of feet. In your house, you may prefer cleanliness over odors. The point I'm emphasizing is your house, your rules. This, brothers and sisters, is God's house, God's rules. When Paul wrote Timothy, he used the word in verse 15, behave. He says, church, there's a There's a particular ordering of things that are simply there or not, right or wrong, present or absent. And what ideas did he have in mind? What what rules? Well, you can let your eyes just jump back to the start of chapter 2 and skim through that chapter if you need some reminders. Here, Here they are sort of in summary fashion. Paul started in chapter 2 by saying, church, if you're going to get things back on track, then one of the habits you just must start with is prayer. The people of God are a praying people. We're a people who have needs, and we're fine to be needy because neediness puts us in a posture of dependency on God. And we don't hide our needs. We put them front and center, bringing them to God, asking Him to meet those needs to His glory and our good. Tonight, we're going to try to do just that. So if you're able, I hope you'll come back at six, as Hansley shared. We'll spend a brief time doing something really special with 1 Timothy. I hope you'll be here to see it, observe it, be encouraged by it. We'll sing one song, and then we'll spend... A little over an hour together simply praying, sharing 
and praying. It'll be great. Chapter 2 went on then to say there's, there's some other rules in God's house. And he specifically addressed men and women separately. He said, men, we're to be marked by holy praying, not angry fighting. And women, you're to be marked by modesty and good works. That all of us are to be submissive also to God's gender design that he's set for leadership in his church. Why? Why do those things matter? They're not arbitrary. They are God saying, in my household, you've got to live by my designs. This is how I've created you and how I've recreated you in the gospel. And this is so important because in God's house, the truth is to be put on display. And then as we've seen the last couple of weeks, we've seen that in the leadership of a church, it is so tempting to pick people to be leaders because of their charisma or because of their particular giftings. But those things are not to drive who leads in the church. It's not who they know, how much money they have, or even their academic accolades. What drives who leads in a church is their godliness. God's house, God's rules. Now, why does that matter, practically speaking? Well, verse 15 tells us. It tells us that the church is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It matters because our, one of our jobs, in, in fact, our primary job description that God on high has given us is that together we would be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, one of those ideas is more familiar to us than the other. The first, obviously, a pillar. A pillar or a column is used in, in construction to hold something up, something precious. It might be a second story. It might be a whole bunch of stories after that. Or it might be the ceiling and a roof. So that pillar is there to prop up something that can't be held up on its own. But how about that other word, a buttress? A buttress is actually used for the same thing, but in a very different way. A pillar is also, a, a buttress is also a support. It holds something up, but it does it by coming alongside of it instead of propping it up. So these, both of these things, we live in the land of stucco buildings. So the goal here is not to build things that last. It's just to build them fast, right? I, I hope... That's not offensive to you. That's just the way it is. So, thankfully, in downtown Tempe, there are homes. Church on Mill even is blessed to own things that were built in the 40s. Now, to some of us, that's not that long ago. But for a lot of us, we can't even imagine 1940s. But most things around here, especially the further out you go, they're just... We just want to get it done fast and then move on to the next thing. Older construction 
would prop things up with a, a pillar because it had something upon it that they intended to be on display and to endure. A buttress would come along and would rather go on the side and hold up a wall or would hold up the foundation. So here's a picture to help us get the idea. This is of the uh, cathedral, the Notre Dame Cathedral in France. And do you see those things on the side? They look like ramps. Those are called buttresses. Now, to the, those of us who are junior hires on the inside, they're actually called flying buttresses. So you can have fun with that in your normal everyday life if you like. But you can tell what they're for. They prop up the walls. Now, Paul almost certainly, as he was writing this, is choosing these terms because in the city of Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was held. The building was called the Temple of Artemis, and it had a hundred columns holding up its ceiling and roof. It had an enormous series of buttresses all around it, one of the largest buildings ever built at that time in the world. And Paul's saying, while that idea while those columns and buttresses are holding up a lie, you, little group of believers, are lifting up the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that temple in Artemis no longer exists. I've been there, I've seen the ruins. It's gone. But the church of Jesus Christ is alive and well. So the images are being used here to remind us that we have a double responsibility as a church. If you're taking notes, you might even write these in your Bible. The idea of the pillar is that we are to proclaim and display the truth. We are to proclaim and display the truth. That's the idea of the pillar. We're also to defend and protect the truth to defend and protect the truth. That's the idea of the buttress. We live in a time when it has never been easier to broadcast your ideas and to gain a following. It has never been easier. And many of the things broadcast and lifted up as supreme and most important and truthful that gain traction and a following are in fact counterproductive to God's design, harmful to human flourishing and outright lies about what's true spiritually. What the world needs the most is not a different political ruler, is not a better economy, and is not a revised education system. 
All of those things would help. But what the world needs most is a people who will display the truthfulness of who God is by how they behave and in what they say. They need a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And that's what we are. Not because we're better than anybody else or smarter or have sinned less consequentially, but simply because we're people who've come to know the living God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's changing us, amen? As he changes us and as we hold tight and fast to the truths of the gospel, we have the opportunity to do what no other group of people are commissioned in the world to do, and that is to lift high the truth and to defend it against heresy and attack. Now, what truths did Paul in particular have in mind as he talked about this? Well, that's where verse 16 fits in. Some of the most important truths we must guard, protect, proclaim, and display are truths about Jesus, who he is, what he does, what he accomplished at the cross and in his resurrection. You'll see those in verse 16, and I wonder if it would be beneficial if we just read it together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You'll notice the bulk of the verse is comprised of a series of six stylistically similar statements. And it's not super obvious in English, but in the original language this was written in, there's even a cadence to it, a rhythm. And this reveals that this almost certainly was either a, an ancient creed, a portion of a creed, so something the church confessed together, or a hymn, something the church sang together. It doesn't matter which one, creed or hymn, really. It just means either they read it or they sung it. But either way, it's amazing to think that Paul took an existing idea or summary of ideas about God, and he used it in his letter, a portion of it. It's probably a stanza of a creed or a hymn in order to emphasize particular truths about Jesus. Frankly, there's enough in each one of these statements that we could slow down and do six weeks of Sunday mornings on each clause. They're, they're so significant. We're not going to do that. I want to try to summarize them. But perhaps as we're summarizing them today, if there's one of them you recognize, hey, I don't, I don't know that much about that, then maybe that's something you could get together with another brother or sister this week and dig into. Look across other scriptures and consider how other passages teach that thing. Perhaps there's even one of them that you might say, that's not what I thought happened. That's not what I understand to be true about Jesus. 
If so, that especially would be a great place to dial in and to consider them. But before we can look at those six, I think we need to first consider just for a moment the word mystery. And you may remember that we even sung, come behold the wondrous mystery. That's the last song we sung today. The word mystery in the Bible very often does not mean what we think of when we hear the word mystery. We hear mystery as something unknown, maybe even something unknowable, something shrouded, something foggy or cloudy. That's not what Paul meant here when he used the word mystery. Usually when the Bible uses that word, it's referring to something that used to be cloudy, but is now seen brightly in the sun, S-O-N, in Christ. Something that used to be shrouded in mystery, but no longer is because Christ has revealed it in his person and work. It's that usage that's used here. You see, there's no longer any mystery about where godliness comes from or what it looks like, or how it can be attained, or how to grow up in it, or how to cling to it. Because Christ came. He shows us what godliness is. We know the source and substance of godliness. His name is Jesus. And some of the truths we hold about him are then listed there in those six statements. The first one, we read that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, manifested in the flesh. Every word there is significant. Think of the word, for example, manifested. Jesus did not come into existence when he was born to the Virgin Mary. He had always existed, and he, yet at a particular moment in time, he was revealed, he was manifested here on earth in the flesh. That is, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who had always been at a particular moment in time entered into the creation that he had created. The Son took on flesh. Why? Well, God is so full of love and mercy that he left heaven to become a Jewish man so that he could live the life that his creation was meant to live in order that then he could die the death his people deserve to die. Jesus died as a substitute on the cross, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God against sinners against sin. And that brings us to the second statement, that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. On the third day after his death, God the Father and God the Spirit used their power to raise God the Son from the dead. And in that raising of him, Jesus was vindicated. You see, it's so hard for us to even imagine this being the case because we have 2,000 years of church history to look back on. But no one expected resurrection. No one was expecting that after Jesus was 
torturously murdered, that he would rise again. It looked for those three days as though everything Jesus said was a lie, every miracle he performed was a sham, and every promise he had made was to be discarded. And yet on that third day, by the power of the Father, through the Spirit, Jesus rose again. And I know you know this, but that also ought to sparkle. Because Jesus didn't merely come back from the dead, he rose in a resurrected body. He rose to be the first of a whole new humanity. And the first to declare or to even, to even see that this was true brings us to the next statement, that Jesus was seen by angels. These creatures that God created, that for now are more powerful than us, beheld the miracle of the resurrection. They looked in awe at the miracle of God the Son back from the dead, resurrected. They'd appeared at key moments throughout his life. They were there when he was born, singing his praises. They were there at his baptism. They were there as he was tempted in the desert before his ministry started. They were there strengthening him in the garden before the cross. They were there to see and to rejoice at the resurrected Jesus. They will be there when he returns. And they proclaimed the basic fact. As a couple of women came to that tomb that Sunday morning to give Jesus a proper burial, they to their shock found an empty tomb and they heard the angel declare, he's not here, he's risen. It's not Easter and we can still be happy about that. He's not here. He is risen. Jesus is alive and well. Everything you read about him in the Gospels is true. How do we know it? The resurrection proves it. News of this resurrected Lord spread quickly. It spread through a particular method. That brings us to the next statement. Proclaimed among the nations. News of this completely unexpected resurrection spread like wildfire in the ancient world. It spread first from the angel to this group of women, and then as they declared it to the apostles, and then through the apostles, it literally spread out around the whole world. How do we know that? Well, first of all, we have the book of Acts. If you're unfamiliar with where the church came from, I'd encourage you to sometime pick up the book of Acts and slowly begin reading it. It's a wonderful story of how Jesus' work continues in the world today through his church, his body. But another way we know it is look around the room. There are other Christians. 
The temple in Artemis is gone, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is doing just fine because the gospel's true. It's enduring because people before us have been faithful to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Which brings us to that next statement, believed on in the world. Not only did the risen Christ get proclaimed, but people believed this message. The good news of Jesus in Christ was believed not only by Jews, but by Gentiles and Samaritans and Ethiopians. And if you read through Acts, it's believed on by all kinds of people. And it's believed on today by all kinds of people. Within a few centuries, against all odds, Christianity went from being a tiny bunch of hillbillies to the dominant religion on the planet. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you today, among other things, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? We Christians believe that that happened because it's true. Jesus did really die in place of sinners, did really rise again in victory. And this message is continuing to spread to the glory of God. From Jesus come new life, forgiveness, peace, joy. Most importantly, come forgiveness from God and reconciliation to God. These are graciously given to all who repent and believe. And that last statement, taken up in glory, this final truth about Jesus is that he was taken up in victory to heaven, and almost certainly this also points to the fact that one day in that very glory, Jesus will return. Jesus left triumphantly. He will return victoriously. He reigns today from heaven through his people in the world. He will one day return physically for his people and in judgment. Brothers and sisters, when will that be? Only God knows. But the scriptures declare that it is soon that it could be today. Could it be another 2,000 years? Yes, but it also could be today. Until then, what are we to be up to as a family, as a church family? Well, we've been given our marching orders from this passage. Church on Mill, we have a job. We've been tasked to be a godly people as we exalt the truth of the gospel. How? Well, as we follow the patterns given to us, the habit of prayer, of modesty, of gendered design, of sharing and protecting, declaring and discipling each other in these truths about Jesus Christ. 
as we live faithfully as the pillar and buttress of the truth, then we will be a church of godly people demonstrating the reality of God's gospel. And there is nothing more important than that. Now, I've labored in the way I've tried to preach this text to give you its corporate sense. Now, not business corporate, but community, collective, plural, familial terms. This passage is about the community of faith doing this together. And yet, I can't help but feel I'd be remiss if I don't take just a moment to emphasize the way in which this can also be applied personally. So we started the message by saying that beliefs determine behavior, that beliefs, what you think, is what ultimately governs what you do. And this passage is a great one to see that in because it just shows us that so plainly. And of course, this applies to us collectively. We've thought through that together, but it also applies to us very much individually as well. So if you're a follower of Jesus, let me, let me ask you a question that I'd love for you to consider. This is rhetorical. You don't need to shout out your responses. As you look back over the last couple of hours, over the last couple of days, last couple of weeks, maybe in the last few months, can you see that there's been a particular arena or realm in which you have found yourself sinning in a very similar way? It, it's repeatedly happened. How would you go about asking God to give you progress in that changing? And you not in the coming days. So if we look ahead, the next couple of hours, the next few days, the next few weeks, the next few months, how would that be different than this? Well, our temptation is to feel bad about our sin, to ask God to forgive us, and then to grit our teeth and try harder. That is the natural temptation of human beings. And unfortunately, that natural temptation is woefully insufficient. It doesn't work. Now, some of us are more bullheaded than others. And so we might make it a few hours past those who constitutionally are not quite as bullheaded, but none of us will be actually be effective at seeing sin patterns change like that. The way this can be different than this is by thinking different. So here's what I mean. Let me give you a quick illustration and then we'll be done. As you look back over this last stretch of time, Maybe just for example, the thing you recognize you have repeatedly failed in is that you've had sinful outbursts of anger. That that's been the spot at which you have struggled. Well, friend, I would say I've been there. I can appreciate that and I understand. How is it that that could be different? 
Our temptation is to think, well, I need a different set of circumstances. I mean, the people I live with, my boss, uh, my kids, my teacher, the other drivers, they're all idiots. And if people would just do what I want them to do, everything would be fine. And if, if, if they would just, or if we boil it down to an individual conversation, maybe someone came to you about something and they sought to correct you. And maybe in response to that correction, you were defensive and angry. We want to look at that other person and think they're the source of our anger, but they're not. James tells us that anger comes from desires within us. So what might that desire be? Well, usually it's a desire to be self-protective, um, self-defensive, self-vindicated, self-justified. I don't want to be th- thought of as somebody that's an idiot, so if somebody corrects me, I'm going to correct them so they know I'm the one that's right. They're not the one that's right. And the vicious cycle goes over and over and over, right? You're familiar with this. Don't pretend you're not. But here's the thing. If you come and correct me, even if you're right, that what I said was wrong, that urge to self-justify need not be there. Why? Because I've already been justified. I've already been declared right with God. And therefore, it is of no consequence at all if I need to be corrected over something I've said. It means nothing about my personhood because my personhood is settled in Christ. Are you with me? So how do you change that? Well, you say, God, help me to understand that I have been made right with you through the death and resurrection of Christ. And if I'm right with you, then everything's all right. And whatever anybody else might give me will mean nothing about my my core identity. It is settled and secure. And therefore, I need not justify myself. I need simply live in community And when I sense that urge within me, I can say internally, God, thank you that you've made me right with you. And therefore, I can be right or wrong in what I said. It doesn't really matter because you made me right with you. That's a simple illustration. But belief drives behavior. If I believe I must justify myself that you must think I'm good for me to be good, then I'm always going to be responding in anger. But if I know I've been made right with Christ, that is sufficient.
A great way to work this out in our experience is by observing the Lord's Supper. Maybe as we've talked about sin patterns in the last few weeks, you have recognized the need to confess something to God. I'd encourage you as we pass out the elements to take the Lord's Supper today to do just that, to consider the death of Christ, what it cost Him, to be forgiven as you confess that sin. And then we'll take together to rejoice in that God has brought us together as a church family. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of some church in just a moment, as the elements are passed, I'd encourage you to take that and hold it, to ponder in prayer, to celebrate what you've been given in Christ, and then we'll observe together. Let's pray, and then brothers and sisters will come and pass those out. God, thank you for what you have given us. Thank you that you've clearly declared in your word what the church is for. The church exists to pillar, to hold up the truth that the world might see who you are and come to hear you and be saved. And we also exist as a a buttress, as a protector and a defender of that same truth. Father, give us the strength and the wisdom to see the ideas around us and even at times within us that are simply wrong. And while we shouldn't fight about everything, we certainly ought to be tenaciously committed to defending the truths about Jesus. I thank you, God, for the gift of being part of a church that does this well. Help us to grow still more. And as we reflect now on ways that we still need to mature in our belief and behavior and confess those to you, we thank you for the supper because it reminds us that we are forgiven, that we are reconciled, and that we have each other. Create in us a fresh and a new clean hands and a pure heart as we pray in Jesus' name.